Hey, this is Satori Shakur coming to you live from WDET in Detroit. Our next storyteller is Tuyashima Claire Gasma Magara, Rwandan refugee who tells her moving, courageous, harrowing tale of survival of the Rwandan genocide. Ladies and gentlemen, Claire Gasma Magara. It was 2017, it was August 2017. Uh, I was uh, watching six o'clock news on ABC and uh, I saw white supremacists marching in Charlottesville, Virginia. I saw them chanting, Jews will not replace us. And I saw hate. All of a sudden, I was crying. Not because I was uh, scared that the white supremacists were going to find me in Detroit, but because it reminded me my story of surviving hate. In a second, I was taken back to my country. I come from Rwanda. The history that took years and years played in my head in only one minute. In 1990, the Tutsi rebels attacked the country of Rwanda and immediately all Tutsi inside the country, including my family, they were believed to be enemies. So politicians started fueling hate, calling them cockroaches, calling them snakes, and it went on and on. My father was a mayor. He was a very successful young man. He grew up in a family of poor people, according to Western values. So he would go to school to escape farming work. And he ended up being successful. At my age, 35, he was an elected mayor, and he had won a seat in the Rwandan parliament. As the war was playing in the north of the country, there was a peace agreement. and. We hoped things were going to be better. In 1994, April, the plane that was transporting the president, two presidents, President Habyarimana of Rwanda and President Nadjamira of Burundi was shot and they died along with their delegation. The airport is situated in the district where my dad was the mayor. In the night, he was the first person to receive a call. The president is dead. All of a sudden, we heard shotguns. We were happy, my sister and I were happy because we were going to spend a night in my dad and stepmother bedroom. But there was a panic. We didn't know what to do. On the radio, they were saying we need to stay home. The next morning, the Hutu militia put barricades on the roads, main roads, and on the street. And uh, in our national identities, it was written our ethnic group. We have three ethnic groups. We have Hutu, Tutsi, and Twa. 
So if you are a Tutsi, you will be killed, and if you are Hutu, you will be able to pass. And the same day, my father received a visit from the United Nations soldiers. They told my father that people like him who were, who were in opposition, they're being killed, and he should evacuate. My dad said, no, I should take control of the situation. My dad was a big guy. I really hoped I would be big and tall. He was a six feet, three inch. He weighed like 250 pounds and he had a big voice and he was hairy. And so <laughs> I was disappointed to know that I would be short like this. <laughs> so he was like, I would take care of the, the, my people, they voted for me, I would take care of the situation. Things would calm down in a few days. The next day, my house was attacked. They were looking for my stepmom. I saw a crowd of people. Some were carrying machetes, others were killing clubs. They were chanting with hate. And I remember the song they were going, which means, let's eliminate them, the Tutsi. My stepmom was the only woman I knew as my mom. I lost my mother when I was five. She died of AIDS complication, and I was born with HIV. I grew up spoiled. We were not extra rich, but I, I come from the house of a mayor, you understand, you know? <laughs> I was loved, the showered with love because they were thinking I will live a few days, few years. My stepmom, she was not my mom, and I knew, and we had always fight because we both loved the same man, my father, for different reasons. She loved my father as her husband, I loved my father as my father, and we were always in competition. But she was gracious, and she was beautiful. So I couldn't imagine why they are looking for her. And they said they want to kill her. She's a Tutsi. She's, she's a snake. She's a cockroaches. Our house was guarded by policemen. They tried to stop the crowd, but the crowd ended up inside the compound anyway. As they were chanting, the windows will be shaking. And I was tiny, I was 10 years old, and I was scared to the core. We went hiding with my stepmom in the, their bedroom. And my father went out to negotiate. They were telling him they would find him a Hutu woman to marry. They're going to kill that one and find him another woman to marry. And in the middle of those negotiations, one of the policemen, I think two, they came and they said, we're going to, let's go. We're going to hide you. They took us through the back. It was a, a dog gate. <laughs> Nobody used that gate. But that time, that gate that saved us. Me, my, si my young sister who was eight, and my stepmom. We went through this baggage, and we went to the, our neighbor. They were from Congo. 
I grew up in an area where we were living with uh, people from all over the, the world, expatriate. It was a high-class neighborhood. And we went to hide to our neighbors in, of, from Congo. In the middle of the night, we were told that they were searching houses of foreigners because they believed the Tutsi were hiding there. Again, we were, the police moved us back in our house. And in the next morning, another member of parliament, elected member of parliament came to my house with his children and grandchildren, their wives. They were like, over a sudden, my house has had more than 40 people. And my father was new. <laughs> Our house has been attacked. Now he was begging for refuge. The United Nations were on a mission to keep peace and to protect the high-level politician. And my father was one of them, so they came. And they evacuated us. They put us in the white trucks, and we were able to pass through barricades with the UN flags. That's how we ended up in the United Nations Army camp. When we got there, there were other refugees, many refugees. Children and women, we stayed in a hall, and men spent all night and then days outside listening to radio. We didn't have food, we didn't have water, and we didn't have enough toilet but we were safe. There were two trucks with heavy weapons pointing at the front gate and the back gate. So we felt safe. At least we were not going to die. Two days later in the camp, 10 UN soldiers were killed when they were trying to protect the prime minister of Rwanda. All of a sudden, they said, we cannot keep dying for, you know, the people of Rwanda. The United Nations decided to take their military from Belgium. And uh, my father was the one commissioned to break the news. They were gathered as refugees. And my father had a speaker, hey, the United Nations is going to leave. We all screamed, we are going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. But our cries didn't matter. Few hours, they have left, and they left with their heavy guns that were supported to protect us. The minute they left, Hutu militia, along with the military, entered from the north gate throwing grenades and shouting randomly. That time I had pneumonia. I was a sickly child, but a happy child. And I couldn't run. I stayed in the hall with other people who were weak and old. My stepmother took my eight-year-old sister, and they ran. My father was like, run, run to the United Nations in a, on the national stadium. There may be other soldiers from Bangladesh. So they ran 
through the south gate and I was left. Few minutes later, armed people came and they were throwing grenades in the crowd. And we were old, some were old, sick, you know, children. And I can see the body throwing like this. And I'm like, this is a scene you see on movie. But I was seeing it and at that age, nobody ever prepared me to die. <laughs> Even if I was a dying kid, my family were scared to talk about death. Nobody ever talked to me about death. I'm like, what is going on? What's going to happen? And a few minutes later, they left running for the stronger people. And I was left around dead bodies. Some were agonizing. There was blood everywhere. I started praying that my God can show up. You may think my God was the God from heaven or the white God. My God was my father. He used to say, I am God. He was able to do everything to protect me, to heal me, to love me. And I grew up thinking he's God. <laughs> there was a God they speak, we never see. But I believed in God because I could see my father, how strong, how he respected, how, you know, he was a big figure in my eyes. And I knew he loved me. No matter what, he cannot deceive me. And I started praying that I can see my God. Not the God they speak in the Bible, but my God I know can see. All of a sudden, my God showed up. My dad was searching. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. For me. So... He took me on his back, and we ran. We used small street, and we were following other people to the national stadium. We got to the main road. All the refugees were blocked. This time, they were blocked by the military. Seriously, we were refugees with no weapons. Helpless. But we were guarded, but we were blocked by heavy truck with guns pointing all over. And they asked everybody to sit down. It was raining and muddy. And uh, one of the commanders said, you were garbage. You deserve to be thrown at the city garbage correction center on Nyanza Hill. They walked us to Nyanza Hill. It was a long walk and it was raining. We got to the Nyanza Hill on the top. They asked us to sit. One of the killers who was having grenades here, here, knives, and he was armed, saw my father and came to him and said, get out. This is a stupid Hutu. I'm going to kill you in a special way. So my father and I, we, we, we went out of the crowd. 
and on the, in the bush, he said, sir, I want to save you. Yeah. You have been nice to me. I know you. I want to save you. Run for your life. So we spent the rest hiding house to house. In the middle of the war, we got reunited with my stepmom. My stepmom was beautiful. She would keep her natural hair. And uh, she speak like graciously, like, you know. <laughs> but that time, her hair was covered with flesh from thrown from grenades. And her shirt was soaked in blood. And there was blood flowing on her legs. She didn't have shoes. She had lost my sister. She didn't know where my sister was. She said, when they started sh shouting, she ran away. And she smelled like rotten meat. She was walking dead. I never watched walking dead because I saw what walking dead mean. The war was approaching. The population were being moved up to the south. We ran with other refugees and we, were, we got refuge to my grandfather. We were hiding there, living there. My stepmom had to hide house to house. And you can imagine that time she was pregnant, hiding house to house. And in the middle of the night, there will be crowd of people holding taiki torches, like the one I saw on the white supremacists. And they will be chanting, hunting down Tutsi who may be still hiding. And all of a sudden, when they will pass by my grandpa's house, it was a, I cannot explain the feeling, but it's, it's like it moves you. It's like the world becomes small. You, know? you feel like, where do I belong? July 1994, the Tutsi Den rebels have captured the city, the capital, and they were calling people to come back. And my father was like, I'm going to go back. I, we went back. On our way, we were refugees going back. A part of the country was captured by the, the then Tutsi rebels. And uh, we had to go through screening. During the screening processes, there were uh, intelligence people charged to get information on families. And if people were accused to have killed the Tutsi, then they would be killed. It was scary. We were housed in a semi-destroyed house. Our, in the middle of the night, you would be hearing people being tortured, crying, screaming. And during the day, they would be dragging people. I remember one of the young men I knew. They were handcuffing him, beating on his chest, and he was vomiting blood. Because some people say, hey, she was, he was killing too. I, I was like, who is the good guy in all this? <laughs> and um, it, my, my dad time came. They handcuffed him in his glory. And they removed his shirt and shoes. 
And they started, he had a big belly. He started picking, poking his belly and saying, you must have eaten people. You know, this is full of blood. And I saw hate. They were responding head with hate. And they turned to my stepmom, touching her inappropriately, groping her. You were way beautiful to stay married to this hyena. This is a nape. This is an animal. Hutu are savages. He will eat you. I'm confused. They're telling my father to kill my mom because she's not right. And they're telling my it's I'm as a child, I'm confused. Eventually, my father was saved. He had a service card showing he was, uh, he has a, what they call immunity. He was a member of parliament, elected member of parliament, and he was still a mayor. We were able to get back to Kigari, to the house. The city was devastated. There were still dead bodies on the street, in the backyard. It's a scary image compared to the image you know now in the news. Every time they would come to pick up my father, they would handcuff him, they would take him for questioning. He would go for days and would never know if he was going to come back. I saw my God losing his fight. I saw my God scared, you know? And I would look in his eyes, I couldn't see the same God with pride and because he was humiliated, he was demean. I, I don't know how to, uh, to explain. In all that time, I learned that the world kept spinning. I learned that there was uh, uh, Olympic Games, the Soccer World Cup. I couldn't imagine. People were sitting in front of TV, really? <laughs> you know, I couldn't. And what made me sad is in the movies, every time I saw a movie, there would be big, in the, in the 90s, there were big camera. You would see the reporters and the, and the helicopter coming to, to cover a crime scene. But for us, it was total silence. We were left by the world. <laughs> Forgotten. I, as a child, I was like, why can I not see the scene I see in the movie here? Life came back. My father took office. He handed over. Then he took an office. He became a member of parliament. People were dying beyond the genocide. There were revenge going on. People would be called for a meeting and they would be murdered just because they were who to someone is angry. And my dad was speaking up like, like I'm doing now. And they even crossed the border and went to the Congo, to the refugee, and killed thousands and thousands of Hutus, innocent. My dad would speak up. He was young, you know. He would speak up and eventually he got himself in trouble. He died on house arrest. My God died 
eventually I understood there's a God in heaven who created my father and my grandfather. Yeah, there was a way he was explaining that his father is his God, his father. So then, then it goes to God in heaven. I say, okay, now I need the God in heaven. We lived with my stepmom. After the genocide, my stepmom was changed. You know, she was sorrowful. And her family, they have lost so many people. And my family was losing so many people. And on top, we were stigmatized. People living with HIV, sinners with critical behaviors. And also, as Hutu, you, this little killer, genocidal, you know, all kind. My dad was in the, all the newspaper. And at a certain time, I was scared even to be named after him. Few years, she died. And she died of sadness. And I was left as a child or head of household. I'm, I live with HIV. I forgot to say my stepmom gave birth to my sister, youngest sister. I had two sisters, five and 15. And I was 17. I was a child. So I had to take care of my family. When my sister was finishing high school, she fell in love, she had a baby. And the family never came to see the baby because the baby was born from Hutu family. Now it's 2012. Of course, I became an activist at the age of 20. I was at the uh, HIV Young Leader Funds. Oh my God, I've traveled, done a lot of things in my young age, in my 20s. I mean, in the United States, I migrated and I applied for asylum. And thanks to the family, to my host family, they're here. They mean a lot to me. Irene. All of a sudden, they give me two identities. They say, you are black and poor. I'm like, wait a minute. Black? I didn't know I was black. Everybody's black. There's no need to stress it. <laughs> and I'm saying, I'm poor. Poor means I will be alone. I will eat by myself. You know, it doesn't mean what it means in the Western world. Here it means material things, but for us it means I'll be by myself. I'll be. That's what it means, poor. I deny to be poor, and I embrace to be black. At least nobody will come and see Claire is uh, Hutu. She has Hutu features, or she has Tutsi features. I was look at Maya Angelou because I like writing and I'll say, I rise. And I'll say, that's how I look like when I'll be older. I will see my, <laughs> I will, you know, people say I always look at the bigger boots to fit, but I will like, I will look like Maya Angelou. Hmm? That when I'll be older, you know. I enjoyed being in a life. I fell in love. I was having a life like other people. But all the time people hear my accent, they say, hey, Claire, where are you from? And they say, Rwanda. And they will say, 
Oh, Hotel Rwanda. So, are you Hutu or Tutsi? I'm like, uh, you know, because I'm ashamed by the story you all know, because you only want know one side of the story. And you all know a story that is, uh, has been chosen to be political correct. There has been a genocide of Tutsi. I survived it, I know. I have seen angry Hutu killing people on the basis that they are Hutu. But beyond that, there have been other angry people killing other people too. We have to acknowledge that. And I'm saying this one story is not enough to explain what we went through as a nation. And I felt that shame of being who I am, shame, something like, it's like a, covering me, like a hiding. When I was in front of TV, watching the white supremacist, I said, am I going to be a godfather like my father and die humiliated with no power? Or am I going to be vulnerable and tell my story as raw as it is? Am I going to share with the world what really happened? And uh, in front of TV, I saw hate. Those white supremacists, those pro-Nazi, looked like the Hutu killers I've seen in the street of Kigali. Regardless of color, regardless of language, when they were speaking, go back to Africa, Jews will not replace us. For me, it was the same song. To you know, let's eliminate them. I saw the same angry men who were doing the revenge. And I concluded that hate has no, no color. It's not a matter of race. It's not a, a, a matter of uh, country. Hate is hate. And it's a damaging force. And we have to stand up against hate. And the seed of hate come from greedy politicians who use hateful speech. I'm afraid when I hear people calling other people poker hunters, calling them liars, call them enemies, mobs, we should be scared. Because that fewer people who go to house of worship and kill people, that fewer people with the power to speak up, hey, go back to Africa, you know, saying all those kind of stuff. We are one family. We are a family of human race. <laughs> we should not allow politicians who are greedy to divide us. I, should, I would like to end to the point, to the stressing that we should stand up against hate and we are one. We are not that different. Thank you. Twisted Storytellers podcast is a production of WDET in Detroit. 
Recorded live at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History by Rassam Cherry. Sound design and mix by Sam Bobian and Rowan Nemisto. Podcast coordinator Joan Isabella. And special thanks to Michael Perkins. I'm your host, Satori Shakur. And thank you, MGM Grand, for supporting season three of the Twisted Storytellers podcast. See y'all next time.